Welcome back to Highly Respected IQ Supplements. I'm your host, Scott Greer. Today, this is a little bit different episode. This isn't about a historical topic or some book I read. This is about the Virginia election. It'll cover a couple of the different elections that happened last night, but as I promised on the last normal Highly Respected episode, I said we're going to do an IQ supplement on the Virginia election, what it means, what takeaways we should have from it, and everything else involved with it. And that's what we're going to do today. So I hope you guys are excited for a little bit of of different IQ supplement. And there is a lot to talk about with the Virginia race. So as you all should know, Young Kid won. Young Kid won by a pretty, you know, substantial margin for, you know, considering it's a blue state, (laughs) you know, and people predicted that McAuliffe was going to win by over five points. Uh, I mean, this was the journalist con- uh, consensus prior to just a few weeks ago, is that everyone predicted that McAuliffe was going to win in a blowout. Whenever I want to see journalist consensus, I go to Dave Weigel, who's a Washington Post reporter and is essentially a DSA unpaid DSA hack. I mean, he always delivers the DSA party line on every issue and on every candidate that the DSA or the Bernie bro uh, faction supports, he always delivers that. And it's and even it goes along with supporting the Democratic Party line. And he was mocking people for saying this is going to be a close race uh, and that McAuliffe was going to win by 10 points and everyone's going to look embarrassed. He said this, I believe, in September. Many other journalists were repeating this and McAuliffe lost. So that is an interesting development that this happened in a blue state or what people perceived as a blue state that went for Biden by 10 points in just a year ago. And now it just decisively went for a Republican candidate. So there's a couple of things we're going to dissect from the results and analyze from to results to take away from this. The most important takeaway to uh, assume from this and to see in this election is that Youngkin won based on promising to ban critical race theory and to looking into these education issues. Education was one of the more important issues in this election. 25% of voters said that CRT, critical race theory, was their most important issue. And 72% said that it was an important issue to them. It was one of their important issues. This was a decisive factor. And the large majority of those people who were saying that it was either their top issue or important to them favored, I almost said McAuliffe, favored Youngkin. This was the key issue that helped him win. And this is important to remember because a lot of people are going to try to push this election in the direction they want. And all these never-Trumpers, and moderate Republicans who just want to get rid of Trump, who want the GOP to move away from cultural and identity issues and just stick to economics and tax cuts, they're looking at this and saying, the real key to victory is electing a boring Mitt Romney who just focuses on jobs and the economy, which that's not how Youngkin won. Youngkin won by taking on these the number one cultural and identity issue of our time is that and that's critical race theory in schools. And he also added in with all the gender insanity that they're putting in schools and highlighting this case of, you know, a suspected transgender student allegedly raping girls at a at a Loudoun County high school and he and the school covering it up. And McAuliffe saying that parents should have no role in, in determining their kids' education and that all the education should be determined by teachers' unions and the school boards, and that's it. And the parents have no role in that, and that was McAuliffe's message to Virginia. He was able to win on this. And these were much, these were not, you know, bread and butter issues, as they say. It's, it's, these are not like about the standard um, business first Republican interests that they care about. This were cultural issues. This was a white lash. That and that's what that's how Democrats and liberal media are showing this as. Democrats are being much more accurate than I think a lot of conservatives because conservatives want to think that this is just like a moderate Republican victory. This shows that we need to eliminate Trump entirely and we just need to go forward and without Trump and just return to how we were in the good old days prior to Trump running in 2016. That's not the case. Democrats understand this much better. If you were watching MSNBC or CNN last night, they had hosts melting down and blaming all these stupid white people for 
giving this victory to Youngkin for saying that they were lied to about something that doesn't exist because they always they go back and forth on critical race theory you have to remember this is that they either will say that it's non-existent or it, it's actually very important that we teach this because it teaches just uh, diversity, equality, and tolerance. And we have to make sure our kids learn that. So they go back and forth on that. But last night they decided that this is a lie, that it's like a conspiracy theory that somebody made up. You know, it's like believing uh, space aliens are running our government. They're trying to equate that to <laughs> believing that critical race theory is taught in schools, which... And then you bring up examples of critical race theory taught in schools. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. that's not critical race theory. That's uh, just uh, diversity, inclusion, and equity. You know, that's that's DIE. That's all that we care about. That's not that that's not that's totally different from critical race theory. It's like the same thing with like Ibram X Kendi being like, well, I'm not a critical race theorist, and like, whoop, yep, whoop. The case closed. Critical race theory is not taught in schools as they're handing out uh, anti-racist baby, uh, his children's book in, in kindergarten. You know, they, they try to lie to people and, you know, do people into believing this stuff. And a lot of liberals believe it. But parents themselves know that these lies are wrong because they come back and they see their kids being like, Hey, you know, my kid is six years old and they're being taught that they're evil because of the color of their skin. There was a mother in Loudoun County, I believe who was on the verge of tears calling about how her child had been crying to her. It's like the, you know, and she had a six-year-old kid, I believe it was a daughter. And that daughter was crying about how the teachers <laughs> is telling her that she's evil because of the color of her skin. And that's what's taught in schools. And parents realize this also just from looking over their kid's shoulder to see what they're learning during the lockdowns. And they're seeing all this madness that is being taught by the schools. They probably weren't aware of this before, but due to the lockdowns and them actually seeing what's taught to their kids and actually going over the syllabi and the curriculum and seeing what the teacher is saying to them, they're like, this is nonsense. This is insanity. I don't want this in my schools. And so this was the decisive issue in the Virginia election. Nothing else, you know, nothing else comes close to it. And this is a white backlash or a white lash. I'm fine with calling it a white lash. Like some conservatives like, oh, no, people are calling it a white lash. And there was people like uh, Larry Sabato, who's a, you know, a well, res highly respected uh, a political scientist who's an election expert. He he in the past was considered very moderate and nonpartisan, but he's become like an absolute like lib due to Trump. And it's like very obvious to see his biases. And he was saying right before the election that this is all about race. This is all all white, you know, whites reacting to seeing this stuff taught in their schools and they don't like it. And that's how the media is going to frame that. And that's a, that's great. I'm glad they're doing this. I mean, this is awesome that they're doing this because this shows that this is the winning issue. And it doesn't matter that if, you know, the entire media is calling these parents racist, they're going to still say, I don't care if you call me racist. I don't care if you call me uh, duped or believing in conspiracy theories. I know what the truth is. I know what's being taught to my kids. And I don't want that being taught to my kids. And I'm going to stand up and try and vote and support whoever will ensure that this is not taught to my children. So that's very white-pilling on my remarks. You know, the white lash is very white-pilling, uh, so to speak. Continuing on with the white theme, the electorate was also very white this time in Virginia. I mean, this is the first time that it's cracked into the 70s since, I believe, 2014, whereas in the low 70s, I think it was like around 72%. The In 20 this year, it was 74% of the electorate was white. And 61% of them voted for Youngkin. And that was a major change from 2020. And that year, the white electorate was only 67% of the vote. And only 53% of that went for Trump. And it's been around 67% for the past few elections. I know it was in 2017. I believe it was around that number in 2016 as well. And the last time it was this high was in 2009 when it was the last Republican governor to win, McDonald, who won where the elector was 78% white. And now I argued this in the Daily Caller when back when I was at the illustrious Daily Caller. I was a, I was a highly respected Daily Caller editor, not just alum, alumnus. Um, I argued this in an article right after, you know, Ed Gillespie got destroyed by Ralph Northam in 2017. I was saying that this is, you know, a lot of people were blaming this all on Trump. A lot of them were just like saying, oh, no, we got to go return back to the pre-Trump business first Republicanism. And they were saying this with like Ed Gillespie, who is like the embodiment of like business first Republicanism. 
a former RNC chair, incredibly boring, nothing interesting about him. And he lost badly to Northam for a lot of various reasons. And uh, the main one I was pointing out is it's like demographics are changing. You know, demographics are changing in Virginia. And... <laughs> there's a different turnout you know you're it's very hard to for republicans to win an election when 67 percent of the electorate is you know only 67 percent of the electorate is white and then in and the last time they won a statewide election in 2009 it was 78 percent that's like a big difference that can explain why you know republicans lost and uh, some people didn't want to believe that but as we're seeing now that's like the truth is like getting whites to come out and vote and he did win, you know, Young Kid did win Suburbanites back. Loudoun County was not a blowout. He only lost it, I believe, by nine points. I'd have to look at the final number. It was still uh, up in the air the last time I looked at it. He won back Chesterfield County, which is a suburb of, of Richmond. He was doing much better in Fairfax County. He won. He got a greater number there. I mean, it's still like a blowout. I think he lost by uh, 30 points in Fairfax, but... Fairfax County is very liberal. Uh, he was also doing a little bit better in Prince William County. And he won. He also won uh, Falkir County. I actually don't even know how to pronounce the, the damn county name. So you know what I mean, uh, which is also technically it's on the edge of being a D.C. Uh, su suburb county. It's pretty out there and it's not it's not as uh, that populated, but he won that by a greater margin. So he increased his margins over, you know, Trump and Gillespie uh, by a significant amount. And it's particularly in the suburbs. But it was like one thing that look, I mean, exit polls keep showing different things. Like I saw the CNN exit poll that showed that uh, Youngkin did worse among Hispanics than Trump. But then there's another exit poll that's showing, I think it was put out by Fox News, showing that he won the majority of Hispanics. So <laughs> there's... Uh, some differences among the exit polls out there of how he did. But I mean, the one thing that, that's really clear is that this electorate was whiter and more of those whites voted for Youngkin than they did for Trump and, and for Gillespie as well. So this is something to keep in mind when you're looking at this election is that this was due to white voters. This wasn't necessarily due, maybe he did a little bit marginally better among Hispanics or Asians, uh, we'd have to wait to see for that to come out. Um, I would like to look at the final or some uh, conclusive exit polls before concluding on that. But the real, the major takeaway is that he did much better. He, he got more whites out there and he did much better among whites. And how did he do this? He did this by focusing on education, by telling him that these evil liberals are going to control their kids and they have nothing to do about it unless they vote for someone different. And these evil liberals are going to tell their kids to hate themselves due to the color of their skin. And I'm the only person who can try to ban this. So he won on that message. And that, you know, anti-CRT appears to be a winning message among suburbanites even though there was like a weird poll that I showed where or i saw where college educated white women voted more for mcauliffe than they did for biden by like two or you know three points i think it was uh, i think it was like a 59 percent for biden 59 or 58 percent for biden then 61 or 62 percent for uh mcauliffe and you have to wonder it's like well how the hell did that shift happen who are the like trump to mcauliffe voters there and as i said the exit polls you know want to look more at conclusive exit polls because you know they're a little bit all over the place at the moment and before you know making a definitive conclusion but you're like wondering it's like well how the hell did that happen maybe uh and some people were saying well it's like if he's doing so well among suburban parents how does it explain you know, him winning, uh, doing poorly among college-educated white women. Don't those uh, women have kids? And I would say that the argument for that is, is that a lot of the college-educated white, white women uh, in these places like Northern Virginia, they don't have kids. So, um, and I think that's also what's driving like support for mass mandates in schools. I think that's largely driven by people without kids or like hyper paranoid parents. Because I know that there's a lot of liberal parents out there who don't like the mask mandates for their kids. They're like they're like eight years old. They see that their kids are suffering. They're not complete sociopaths. They don't like their kid coming home crying every day and like absolutely hating the mask. And they're like, 
this tears them up even no matter about their politics. And this is once again them seeing the truth and then being like, I don't really like this. But I think it's being forced upon by like childless people and older people, even like older conservative people who like really uh, fear COVID. I mean, for I mean, if you're older, there's probably more reasons to worry about it. But I think that's driving what the mass mandates are. I did see a poll that exit poll that showed that there was a majority support for uh, child mass mandates. I saw this on like one of the TV or somebody sent out a screenshot of it and I was trying to look for it. I couldn't find it before the podcast. Um, but I do, there have been polling before showing that a majority of Virginians do support uh, mass mandates for kids and uh, also support vax mandates. And the COVID, COVID stuff didn't really play much in this election. That was like one surprising thing. It's like, if you looked at the ads, you know, Youngkin didn't really talk about that. I mean, I guess it kind of went in with his message about getting parents greater power over their children's education which is kind of a wink which is a wink and a nod to like saying like you should have a greater role in determining whether your kids are masked up all the time um but it's not very explicit and even with mcauliffe's ads he didn't talk about covid much at all which i mean maybe these polls are a little bit off because if you think if there's like a majority of people who are supporting these things you know, wouldn't Democrats run on like how much they love masks? Like, and like, you know, we're going to keep you masked up all the time. Like, woohoo, yeah, we love this. Or it's like, we're going to make sure that every single person in this state is, is vaccinated. And, you know, he didn't really run on that message. You know, all he ran on was tying Youngkin to Trump, tying Youngkin to Charlottesville, uh, tying Youngkin to uh, banning uh, black literature and like somehow being connected with the Confederacy. You know, those are the things that they were running on, uh, the Democrats were. They weren't really running on uh, COVID stuff, and neither were the Republicans. So that didn't really play much of a factor in this election. The one thing is, like, uh, you know, some people have been asking, I don't know, what are my takes on New, on the New Jersey gubernatorial race? And I didn't pay attention to that all prior to last night. I didn't realize it was going to be close. I'm not even quite sure, 100% certain how to pronounce the Republican's last name. He's an Italian. It's a very Italian last name. I'm just going to call him the Republican until I learn for certain how to pronounce it. I don't want to embarrass myself. I already embarrassed myself trying to pr pronounce a county in Virginia. Uh, so I'm not going to wait on that. And maybe the mandates played a greater role in that. Um, with that, Because I know New Jersey had much stricter mandates than they did in Virginia. <clears throat> And, you know, people were saying like, well, you know, California, the whole recall was based around the mandates and, uh, and <laughs> Gavin Newsom won by a huge margin uh, on the mandates and that like showed that the mandates were popular. But maybe that's not, not, not the case everywhere. And maybe the mandates were a factor in promoting uh, the Republican into a surprisingly close race. So that race is still going to be up in the air. I may talk about it more next week, you know, to say, but I haven't really been following it. So there may be an interesting story there. But I think the overall picture from these races is not only is it was Virginia referendum on critical race theory and education and letting teachers unions have complete control over kids. It was also a referendum on Biden and Biden's like popularity is continuing to sink. And I don't see it emerging at any time between now and 2022 midterms. Even I don't really see this merging, like really soaring up until like uh, the presidential election. Because there's not really anything that like Biden's going to turn this things around. Like Biden mental state is like declining. I mean, he is an old man. He is turning, I believe, 79 this year. He'll be turning 80. I, I think he'll be turning 80 next year. This is a, um, he is advanced age. You do start to have health problems. You do start to lose your mental sharpness as you grow older. He is showing just like he's like flailing about. He doesn't really know how to hold hold policies. And anytime he's like forced to, you know, take a stand on a policy issue, he sides with the far left because he feels that he's like held hostage by them for the most part. And, you know, people are not liking this. And they also have such a disrespectful attitude towards the media that they are like, you are our servants. You're going to you're going to air our lives and you're going to like it. And so far they've been doing that. And like they don't have to feel like they have to suffer any under any controversy. You know, if, as I keep saying in the podcast, you know, if inflation is rising, they simply say it's not it doesn't exist or it's actually a good thing. It's showing how robust our economy is. 
You know, if there's a supply chain issue, they just so this shows how Biden miraculously saved our economy through mysterious actions because Biden has done nothing to actually help our economy. If they complain about gas prices, they're like, well, this is for the environment and this is a good thing. And journalists just nod their head and dutifully report this stuff. And then they'll fact check people who call out these obvious lies. So they believe that there's there's no change or there's nothing for them to really hear the backlash against them because they rely totally on this echo chamber facilitated by the media. And this is how a lot of Democratic campaigns are running as. And it's the same with McAuliffe. Like McAuliffe ran a whole campaign designed to design explicitly for the media and, and appealing to what they cared about. I mean, they're still traumatized by Trump. They're still horrified by Charlottesville and they still like and they're like the only people who are reading Beloved and all these other books, these terrible books that, you know, maybe children shouldn't read. You know, they're the only people who really care about this stuff. And McAuliffe ran on this campaign appealing to them and he lost. And that's how a lot of these other Democrats are running. I mean, look at defund the police and the media thinks defund the police is incredible. It's a it's a great idea. But defund the police is clearly hurting them in all these places uh, which they run. I mean, there was also this race, uh, mayoral race in Buffalo where the socialist who a black socialist who was an open and avowed police abolitionist. She tried to downplay defund the police, but she said, my ultimate goal is to eliminate police. And she lost to the current mayor who ran as a write-in candidate. You know, that's like people rejecting it. And in Minneapolis, they had, you know, we're going to abolish the police department and turn it into a public safety department. That lost. Now, there was a place in uh, a referendum in Austin, Texas, where they were, they did have a bill to refund the police and that lost, but um, apparently there wasn't enough effort put into supporting it. And Austin's a weird place. I mean, Austin, I don't think has as, Austin is going to, <laughs> kind of going to shit, but it's not as bad as Minneapolis or other places that are seeing rising crime. And their murder rate is going up a bit, but it's not as, it's not Minneapolis where it's like, you know, complete anarchy. But what is the Democrat response to rising crime? Your lying eyes are deceiving you. There is no crime increase because, well, okay, murders may have increased, but uh, property crimes have decreased. They make this argument all the time. And all these journalists, I think it's like Vox reporters, they always like, oh, well, you say crime is increasing, but it's actually decreasing. And then they'll like have an asterisk. It's like uh, homicide is going up, but, you know, other things are not like, like, vandalism has decreased and it's like wow it's okay wow i'm not going to see as much graffiti anymore but i'm more likely to be shot okay this is a this is a necessary trade-off and they really make these arguments and it's easily dismissed is that most of these minor crimes are you know show a decrease because people aren't reporting them because there are less police officers to respond to them and as they're looking at this they're looking at these data of like you know, of calls, you know, increase in shootings, but there's a decrease in calls to police. And that is due to the Black Lives Matter revolution that occurred last year. It's like people don't want to call police and they're not reporting crimes. They have to report murders because like people find bodies and they're like, oh, hey, there's a body here, but they're not going to report break-ins or assaults or all these other things where, you know, as long as there's not a body or like, you know, or shootings, and even most shootings are not even reported uh, to the police, or at least are there's not a corresponding increase in phone calls to police in certain cities with an increase in shootings. So this like sh there's like an easy explanation for this, but Democrats use this as a line to explain well crime's not that bad, and and even if they'll admit murders, like early 90s was way worse. This is nothing. Like the murders you shouldn't worry about. What's really bad is uh, police racism. We still have to confront that, and so they're still doubling down on this stuff. And that's going to be the Democrat response to this Virginia race is like people are saying like, well, what's going to be the effect on Democrats? Are they going to take any lessons from this? And I argue on Twitter. No, they're not. They're, there's no reason for them to take any lessons because they listen to the media echo chamber and the media echo chamber. If you looked at MSNBC and CNN last night, they said there's nothing wrong with Democrats. 
everything's wrong with the voters. They're they're stupid. We actually have to do more to combat misinformation and racist fear mongering. I mean, the Lincoln Project people were all tweeting this out. Uh, Nicole Wallace was all you know one of the MSNBC hosts. She was saying this. They were all em- emphasizing this point that. We have to do more to control information, misinformation, and racist fear mongering. That's the real solution. There's nothing wrong with me. There's something wrong with the with the people. We've got to get rid of these people. They're such idiots. We gotta we gotta change their mind to make sure and brainwash them more to make sure that they're voting the correct way. So there's no reason, there's no incentive for them to change course. I mean, you could see this in how they're running policy in Washington D.C. and what bills they want to pass, like this Build Back Better plan that they want to pass is terrible like nobody wants this bill except for the far left i mean all it does is like it's race uh wealth redistribution based on racial measures it's trying to sneak in amnesty even though they keep you know faltering with it they may still seek sneak some form of amnesty in there you know there's immigration changes that allows more green cards to go to foreigners you know it's going to increase taxes that it's going to go to all these other left-wing pet causes for no gain and they're like oh it's going to pay itself and even the media will lie by saying that Oh, you claim that it's $3.1 trillion. Well, they now got it below, uh, I think it's $1.75 trillion now. But they're like, well, you say it's this cost this month, but it's actually free. And then the journalists will, of course, uh, dutifully write that down and spread that to the country because they had to, that's all they serve. They're just stenographers for the Democratic Party. And then they wonder, this bill is so, it's going to be, people are going to be pissed off by this bill due to the tax increases. And even a further sign of how encased they are in this echo chamber of, of journalists is that they're now trying to reduce taxes for wealthy people in like New York and New Jersey and Connecticut and Massachusetts and, and California. So, because I mean, the the Trump tax cuts increase actually increase taxes on some of those people, on wealthy people, and they're now they're trying to retroact. Even though they're going to raise taxes on mo- on middle Americans, they're going to reduce taxes for wealthy suburbanites in blue areas who are huge liberals. And it's like this is them rewarding their base. And then like the media is like, this is a great idea because of course journalists and their friends are getting tax cuts, and they're like, this, we love this. And then you could see all these. People celebrating. It's like, woohoo, I'm a middle class person in, in LA and now I get a, a tax break. And you're like, they're cutting taxes for their own, for their most loyal supporters to put taxes on middle class people in Oklahoma. That's what that's their new strategy. It's about totally punishing uh, their enemies and rewarding their friends. And this is just like outrageous that they continue to talk about raising taxes on the wealthy elite. And here they are actually reducing taxes for the wealthy elite. And there's the echo chain. They don't have to worry about the media attacking them for this because the media benefits from that. They they don't they just listen to this echo chamber and they're just encased in their own little sphere and nothing penetrates that bubble and there's no reason for them to change course. And so the reaction to the Virginia race is that this is all due to racism and white lash and white people are a problem and we have to work more to disenfranchise them and to brainwash them into uh, believing into what we believe and there's something wrong with the voters, there's nothing wrong with us. And so they're not going to change their attitudes at all and especially when it comes to education they are so tied to teachers unions as i always want to point out when people are always trying to make believe that unions are based i always say the largest teachers the largest unions in this country is the nea it's the national educators association it's the it's a teachers unions they and they are so liberal and they want to control your kids and they are the enemy and people are, you know, and Democrats are not going to d- move away from them. So the NEA, you know, they're pro CRT, they're pro mass mandates, they're pro everything to make your kids experience in school a living hell. They want that supported and Democrats are going to do nothing to resist them. So they're going to continue to push the NEA's agenda, the teachers union's agenda 
in schools and in education. And even though this made them lose Virginia, they're just going to blame voters and white people instead of looking at themselves and being like, okay, maybe it's not a good idea to promote uh, anti-white racism in the school, or maybe it's not a good idea to teach six-year-olds about how they have to acknowledge their white privilege. You know, no, or no, there's not going to be any of that self-reflection because there's no need for it. They believe that they are morally bound, that they are morally justified in doing these policies and their own, you know, institutions that are key to the democratic coalition are demanding these ideas and they're not going to do anything to dissuade them. It's, just, it's the same with like immigration, you know, the border crisis is a major disaster. And one of the things to remember, you know, I have to point this out is in Virginia, immigration was not an issue at all in Virginia, you could complain about like young kids should have been emphasizing more, but he did win and, and a race he shouldn't have won. So yeah, like he can't, I mean, I would have appreciated him more to be more, you know, you know, have a line about illegal immigrants, but you know, he didn't talk about it in any one and Ed Gillespie and Corey Stewart both talked about it and they lost big time. So maybe it's not a winning issue in Virginia, but it is a winning issue elsewhere. And when Democrats are forced to run on their agenda about it, they lose. But for whatever reason, you know, he didn't want to talk about it. I mean, and the sanctuary cities and counties in Virginia are getting worse with their ideas and refusing to deport and uh, detain like dangerous criminals who are illegal aliens. Uh, you know, there is some potential there, but uh, maybe Young kid could have talked about it more, but he didn't. So it is what it is. But going back to the point on Democrats with this idea is that they even though maybe it might not be a big issue in Virginia, it is a huge issue elsewhere, especially in these border states. And Democrats are getting killed on this issue. And what are they doing? They're trying to make immigration worse. They're trying to make this issue worse. I mean, they're giving reparations to illegal aliens who claim that they were uh, they suffered under family separation policies. They're giving they're trying to give visas to immigrants who uh, who suffered under a travel ban and they were denied entry due to their country being under the travel ban. They're even trying to eliminate remain in Mexico, which is one of the few things that decreased legal, illegal immigration remain in Mexico policy. For those who don't know, it was a Trump policy where he, you know, so-called asylum seekers who come in and be like, Oh, I I'm, I'm fleeing Guatemala because uh, my neighbor threatened to kill me. And that's, these are the, usually the things. And they're like, Oh, okay, well, you can't wait here. You have to wait in Mexico or elsewhere. Remain thus them remain in Mexico. And these so-called asylum seekers realizing that they couldn't, you know, stay in America were like, oh shit. Well, my whole point was just to make up some phony asylum claim. And then like you let me in and then I stay permanently because you're never gonna deport me. Is that's how your system works. And then like, uh, no, you're going back to Mexico. And then they're like, oh, this sucks. There's no point to this. So they would all leave and you know, people from Central America who learned that they were going to be allowed in under phony asylum claims just didn't come here. So it worked. And Alejandro Mayorkas, you know, DHS chief, he admitted that this policy works to reduce illegal immigration, but he said that it causes so much harm to these illegal aliens that we just can't do it anymore. So they're trying to, the Biden administration was forced to re-implement Remain in Mexico by the federal courts. But now they're still trying to phase it out, even though a court order is like, no, you have to continue this policy. And they're still like, oh, you know, we, we were thinking about eliminating, you know, it's just we're trying to phase it out. And DHS is openly saying they're trying to phase it out because their base demands that they no longer enforce this policy that could help stem the border crisis. And, you know, they even want to eliminate Title 42, which is like a covid era uh, uh, you know rule enforcement which you know it, it allows them to deport adult illegal aliens immediately under the guy under you know to protect public health under the th the threat they may have covid even though democrats want to lock down this country and force everyone to have a vaccine you know and be vaccinated whether they want to or not Democrats still want to allow illegal aliens who likely aren't vaccinated probably may have covid and they're like Oh, we can't deport you. You have to stay in our country. We're just going to let you walk in. And they want to give them amnesty through these through legislation. So they're trying to incentivize 
immigration so much. And this issue is doing so poorly for Biden. Biden this is on when they poll about Biden's handling of issues. This ranks as low as Afghanistan, which I'm one of the few people who thought that like Biden did, you know, an OK job. Or I'm just glad he got us out of Afghanistan. But it played poorly in among the rest of the public. And there is an argument that's saying that Biden's Afghanistan pullout actually call, helped uh, McAuliffe lose, which actually I am open to this idea because so many so many people in North River Virginia depend on the uh, military industrial complex and the military industrial complex was very unhappy with the Afghanistan withdrawal. So I am open to that theory that it was one of the contributing factors. I don't, it was not a decisive factor, but it's like, you know, one of the things that piled up uh, along with just like Biden's uh, historic uh, unfavorability or un, uh, unpopularity, you know, but going back to the point, you know, immigration and Afghanistan withdrawal are like his lowest polling issues and Democrats solution to this is just to double down on immigration insanity. So they're going to do the same with CRT and education policies. They, there's no, you know, there's no consequences for believing these idiotic ideas and they believe that they are morally obligated to, to impose them and that the morality, their moral system empowers them to do this. And, you know, politics be damned. We'll just, uh, the, these people, we're just going to disenfranchise them and limit their ability to spread their opinions. And that's their solution to it. It's nothing, nothing about them needs to change. So now I'm going back to the Republican takeaway from this. And there's going to be a lot of takes on this and a lot of them are going to be bad. And now even though the Democrats' takes, as I said, are much better, uh, such as, I forgot to mention this one by Wajahat Ali. I guess that's how you pronounce his first name. I don't care how to pronounce it. We could just call him Wajahat. Who gives a shit about how to pronounce his name? He was saying he's a, I think he's supposed to be a comedian of some sort. I mean, all these guys like try to like, oh, I'm funny. And like, none of these guys are funny. But he's like a journalist or writer who goes on TV and he's like, whiteness remains undefeated. And like, based? All right. The white pill. Uh, this is awesome. Whiteness remains undefeated. Let's let's fucking go. Incredible. Let's go. And you're saying this is like, I these takes are way better, way more white pilling. But the Republican takes are saying the real t solution to this is just to be more moderate. It's just like we need to get rid of Trump. That's like all we need to do is like move away from Trump. Trump is dead weight on us. We want to move him. And there's either two arguments for this. This is like populacing types who are saying we need Trumpism without Trump. And then there's like never Trumper types who are saying we need Trump. We we need to eliminate Trumpism and Trump. And there are issues with this matter. I mean, you could argue that Youngkin won. I think the Trumpism without Trump argument works better with Youngkin because he did not, as I said before, he did not win on pre-2016 issues. He did not win on just like tax cuts and jobs. He won totally on critical race theory, which is anti-white racism. And he won on that idea, you know, being in schools and he promised on his first day in office he would ban it. And that's what helped him win. That was the key issue in this in this race based on the polling. So... And there's no and there's no disputing that. So you're having to look at this and and people are wanting to say, oh, well, it's like we just want Mitt Romney back. And I was like, no, 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 that's not it either. That's like just like totally that just totally misjudges the case. And it also ignores that the only way that Youngkin became the candidate in the first place is because he received Trump's endorsement and he happily embraced Trump's endorsement. And he was very pro-Trump in the primary. And I think this did work in the general election. If he had embraced Trump in the general election, he probably would have lost. I mean, there are all these like people who in Virginia who are traumatized by Trump. This is like the heart of people or the center of people who actually care about January 6th. You know, it was a smart political move and it worked for him to put it some distance to Trump. But there's like people who are imagining that that can work everywhere. And you have to remember is that the only way you can win a Republican primary is by having Trump support or by Trump or by not being seen as hostile to Trump. And it's like there's been a few candidates. There was a guy who ran in Texas, I think, for a congressional seat or like an open congressional seat uh, who ran on an anti-Trump, uh, you know, agenda on a message. And the media loved this guy. And they're like, oh, this guy is so great. And he finished like eighth. <laughs> <laughs> this guy like despite receiving the most media attention in this race he he like got no support whatsoever and that's what would happen to anyone who tries to dis who completely distance themselves from trump 
young kid did a smart political move where it's like Trump isn't very popular in this state. I have to put some distance from, from him. But, you know, if you try to do this in, say, like a state like Georgia or, you know, even North Carolina, most battleground states, like things that are not securely blue, like this, this strategy may work in like Colorado or, you know, maybe New Mexico or somewhere like that. I don't know if Republicans could ever win in New Mexico, but they always try. I'm just saying theoretically, but it may work there, but it's not going to work in like places that are competitive like Texas, Ohio, Wisconsin, uh, you know, Georgia, especially Florida, you know, it's not going to work there. And people like they're assuming too much. And now I think that's most easily disproven. And I think one of the things is like this doesn't necessarily the wind does not return GOP to the pre 2016 era. I mean, Trump has permanently shaped the and changed the GOP in a direction as can even be seen by Youngkin, who is an otherwise milk toast Republican who is head of the Carlisle Group, which Carlisle Group is <laughs> not populist whatsoever, uh, to put it to put it succinctly. Uh, and, you know, this guy is now like running on what would have otherwise been considered, you know, Trumpian issues. I mean, he didn't run on immigration, but I mean, anti-CRT is a Trumpian issue. So I don't think like people like, uh, you know, Eric Erickson and others are saying that like this is a model. I mean, this is a model in some states, but in other states, you still have to embrace Trump. And that's just the fact of life. And now the Trumpism without Trump thing that Populist Inc. is saying or them touting like Christopher Rufo as the most important activist in the world right now, which I do want to hand. I like, you know, I as I've said in podcasts before, we all acknowledge and appreciate the reporting that Christopher Rufo has done. I think a lot of his solutions are uh, goofy, and I think a lot of he gets um, people are over the top and thinking like of how much of an effect he has. But he has been one of the people to draw attention to the CRT. But it's not him solely. I mean, it's also I mean a large share of this is due to Tucker and to uh, Trump. But for some reason, they ignore those two figures and pretend that Christopher Rufo all by himself made this a topic when he was one of the people who was the person behind this. And uh, people were like tweeting out like this is Christopher Rufo's world and we're all just living in it. And I'm like, you know, I don't I'm not quite sure about that. That is like kind of cringe, even though on this issue, we're all on the same side. We differ, defer on how we perceive critical race theory and whether it's anti-white racism, which uh, certain people on Rufo's side don't want to admit, but that's a little bit of a brief digression. When it comes to Trumpism without Trump, there are still problems with this, and this is going to be a problem within 2024. The base still sees Trump as their leader, and him being gone and banished, I think, elevates his status. And even when they're looking at these poll numbers, Trump's favorables continue to inch up. With him gone and people remember how good the economy was and you know like you know gas prices were under two dollars rather than being like 350 you know people are looking and you know grocery stores were stocked with food <laughs> there was not supply shortages and people like you know like well maybe trump wasn't that bad i think there is like a growing sense of that but it's also that like there's a special tie between ordinary republican voters and trump that no one else can replicate I mean, people want to run DeSantis. DeSantis does not have the charisma of Trump. He does not have the connection. Uh, he cannot build that connection that, that Trump has with the base. He's not very authentic. Like, uh, DeSantis does, like, a lot of good things, but, you know, he's really, he's not charismatic at all. Like, even if you look at his, like, epic speech by DeSantis, and he's looking down at a sheet of paper, he's kind of struggling along. I can't really make fun of his voice. I've got a goofy voice, too. You know, even for the people who are listening that are like, can't believe that they have to listen to me. DeSantis also has like a goofy voice. Like, it, I mean, it's not like Trump is. <laughs> Trump is like easily manner, <laughs> easy to mock. But like people like listening to Trump. Like even when I'm like listening to DeSantis, there's like a very goofiness to it, which uh, I think is off-putting to an extent. But that goes along with the charisma level. It's like he cannot... Uh, build off that base and people are a little bit too obsessed with like winning the race rather than sending the message like there's a much more important message by trump running again uh than winning because this is a man that the entire regime has considered the number one threat to itself that's why social media bans him that's why every you know the democrats are having this january 6th commission to investigate him and they impeached him twice and they want to put him in jail they view him as the number one threat and to have him run again in spite of all these obstacles and win 
is a huge blow to the regime in a way that a DeSantis run and win would not be. And it would also, you know, move, I think, the right and more in our direction with Trump. Now, there's, of course, many problems with Trump. You know, this isn't the play. I mean, we could spend all day listening to him. I mean, I think most of our listeners know the problems with Trump. But in those same problems exist with like people like DeSantis and Josh Hawley and others who want to take his crown. Like, and especially with DeSantis, like, you know, there's probably will be personnel problems with there. I mean, he's the fact that like Heritage Foundation and National Review absolutely love him, you know, should give people pause. And and even like these horrible libertarians like, uh, you know, like even some like Cato people like uh, DeSantis to an extent. And you have to wonder, it's like all these people hate Trump, but they like DeSantis. Hmm. You know, something something a little off about that. And so a lot of those people would be welcome in his administration. There'd probably be goofy things with his policy, especially when it comes to foreign policy and, you know, foreign interventions. And I also, you know, does he actually believe this stuff? I think one thing about Trump is that he instincts, he has very good instincts, but he has, you know, um, questionable execution or questionable actions but he has very good instincts and you can trust him that on these his instincts are right on a lot of issues but DeSantis you know he is a politician and he's responding to what he believes the base are these aren't really his core beliefs while Trump himself is responding to what he his personal instincts tell him to believe and there's something that's more trustworthy in that than there is DeSantis I mean DeSantis isn't the only choice I mean if uh, either Tucker Carlson or as the dark, real dark horse candidate, uh, Candace Owens is the other one, uh, which I've argued in the past. Like a lot of people are like, Candace Owens, you can't believe that you're saying that. Uh, I think in terms of like our issues, like <laughs> Candace Owens may be the one person to talk about them the most <laughs> in, a, in a 2024 campaign. And it would also be incredible content on a daily basis. It would be a repeat of 2016 uh with candace owens i mean there are of course problems with candace owens as well and there's even some issues with tucker i mean but like those people would probably be those people would probably be preferable to desantis um but i and i think a lot of people are a little bit too eager to ditch trump is like the 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 core part of the party still loves trump they still want trump to run it's still whenever they put these polls out and they show who do you want to run for president in 2024 over 50 percent continue to select trump and if trump actually started campaigning again i think also just with how bad biden is and people having nostalgia and pining for the the trump uh tenure when he was in office I think that would increase his reputation among the GOP. And there's not really a person to fully accomplish Trumpism without Trump. It's more, it's something that the commentariat desperately wants. They want this more than the base does. Like, I think this is like a very uh, big split between Populist Inc. and the ordinary Republican voters is that most of Populist Inc. didn't support Trump uh, in 2016. Some of them never even supported Trump at any point. And all these people are just like, oh, time to get rid of Trump. And like Rufo is always like this. And some of the uh, Claremont people are sometimes into this. And a lot of others is just like, I'm tired of Trump. Even like humongous Trump shills and like who would like get mad at you if even if you made a minor criticism of Trump are like, I'm done with Trump. I'm moving on. And you're like, I remember you like saying Trump was the greatest pre world leader to ever exist. And uh, people, uh, somehow they changed their minds. As it stands right now, Trump is the leader of the base. He's the only one who can send a strong message in 2024 and also just like campaign on our issues and being like anti-regime, anti-global American empire in a way that none of the normal politicians can. Now, there's people outside of politics who could possibly replicate that, like Tucker Carlson and potentially Candace Owens. I know people that are not going to like that second choice, but trust me on this one. But up until like Trump decides he can't run, uh, because that's actually the real problem is like Trump wants to run. And if he runs, he's going to win the primary easily. Like all these people like Mike Pompeo and Chris Christie, like challenging him. It's like, no, these people are going to get like steamrolled. Like there's no choice about this. The only problem is, is like, you know, the regime is going to force him to like say, you can't run. Like we're not going to run your ads. You're not going to be allowed on any on the Internet. You're not we're not even going to allow you to have a payment processor. And it's like. How do you run a presidential campaign like this? Which that speaks to a greater like message. And I don't think the solution is like, okay, well, 
we're going to get the real threat to the system that is allowed to have all these things. And there, there comes a point that is like, what next? I think, and I think like going with like saying like, well, I guess we'll just have to run DeSantis and DeSantis is a better choice. It's like, um, you know, he's, he's allowed all these things, but you think he's a greater threat, but Trump is not allowed these things, but you don't think he's a threat. I don't understand this. So these are all things that are going to be come up in 2024. And, like people who are wanting to dismiss Trump and saying like it's time to get rid of him are <laughs> frankly wrong. And in 2022, it's like all these people are going to be begging for Trump's endorsement and Trump's uh, to rally for them. And we're going to see that this is more that tr it's Trump's party. And even Young can further shows that it is Trump's party, that the only way he was able to win the primary was through Trump's endorsement and by saying he's a Trump supporter. And it was more of a smart political move by not emphasizing that in the general election in the particular state he was in. But overall, the fact that you can't make it through a primary unless you have uh, like unless you present yourself as a Trump supporter and receive Trump's endorsement at some point, that just shows it's his party. And these uh, predictions that like the Trumpism is over or Trump, the man himself, his sway is is finished within the GOP. Uh, they're mistaken. They're going to learn this within the next year. So I have one more final point. This is a little bit more controversial because people were getting upset about this uh, when I was making uh, light of this matter on Twitter. Is that before this election, everyone believed that it was going to be rigged and stolen uh, by this. Now I... There's understandable concerns with this, with a lot of the uh, goofy things and weird things that happened in 2020. And I, I understand where people are coming from with this. And I was one of those people who was also questioning a lot of what we saw in 2020. But it's turning almost into a self-defeatism, like in its bl total blackpilling in many ways. Even like last night when the results first came in, I was seeing very big accounts who were automatically saying, like Fairfax County announced that it was going to have a, uh, like a delay on counting uh, absentee ballots. And there's all these people were like, election is stolen. This is over. Republicans didn't do anything. This is totally a complete loss. And they were just like going in complete doomer mode. And I was like, you know, like, let's wait. Let's wait and see. And it's, sure enough, it turned out that Young Kim was still able to pull off a victory. Now, some people, as they want to say, is like Youngkin isn't necessarily the great uh, greatest candidate. And I actually need to make more point about this before I go into this topic. It's like we need to realize like Youngkin really isn't our guy. Like this, as I said, he's a head of Carlisle Group. Uh, he's a standard milquetoast Republican. He, when he was head of the Carlisle Group, they tried to <laughs> donate money to the SPLC and ADO. He has some weird like initiative to eliminate anti-Semitism as a governor. It's like... Why is this a major concern for him? Like, you know, like, is this going to impact free speech? Like, why is this a, like a serious matter for him? And other, and as I pointed out in this ad, or as an ad he put out, and I actually criticized, and I took a lot of heat for this from Youngkin supporters saying that Terry McAuliffe uh, paid me to tweet about this ad. Is he put out a weird ad which with the uh, daughter of one of the victims of the Charleston sh shooting in 2015? And she's implying that the rise in crime in Virginia is due to white supremacists. Even though it's not very clear cut, you could make a different interpretation saying that she's not blaming white supremacists. She's just saying uh, generic hate. Uh, but that message does come across in the ad. And you're like, what is this ad about? So, yeah, Youngkin is not our guy. I don't think people shouldn't have high expectations for him in office. But the fact that his campaign won on issues we care about, namely the cultural and identity stuff and anti-critical race theory, people should still see this as like a victory and a path forward for how the Republicans should win in 2022. And anti-CRT stuff is going to be a massive winner for the GOP. And that is an issue we deeply care about. And it is like America first and nationalist. And that's why we should be optimistic about young kid winning. But you shouldn't have high hopes for him. You should be uh, much more skeptical of how he will govern. But you should realize that he won on running on an agenda that's appealing to us, to us uh, nationalists and America First types. So that's all I want to say about that. And yeah, Youngkin definitely has his problems. I'm not treating this as like, a, uh, like we won the World Series of politics or anything of that sort. Uh, but, you know, people should have a, po a positive uh, reaction to it, even though, as we all know, elections 
aren't going to solve everything, but they still matter. And going along with that, I want to go back to the uh, the Doomer posting. So, and people kept like doing this like throughout the night, and I understand like why people are doing this. Like, I'm not in it, but it got to like like an insane point, like at like a like near eleven, where it's like pretty clear that Youngkin is going to win. And all these people are convinced he's going to lose. Like, they're like, the the fix is in. We're ready for rigging. It's like, they are going to totally take this away from us. And it's like, you know, like, you know, it's all right to be skeptical. It's all right to be cautious. But, you know, you're going a little bit too much into this. And then people, even when, like, news outlets started to call it for Youngkin, like, people were still, like, insisting that there's going to be uh, a magical change at 3 a.m. And even that there was like pointing out well, like, well, the place that this most likely would happen are like, you know, early ballots would turn in that would somehow go all for Young McAuliffe. You know, that was primarily for Fairfax County. Nearly 100% is in. They don't have enough votes that they can find to, you know, get McAuliffe over the hurdle. Like, let's be uh, positive. And all these people just like kept insisting on it. So, you know, I saw this all night and people in the comments and stuff. So I like made light of it, uh, you know, this morning. And then people were getting more mad about it and just like saying like every election is going to be rigged. Every election is going to be stolen. Like it's like pointless and stuff. And it's like, well, you know, you won on this race and people were wanting to say like, well, Democrats let them win. And it's like Democrats did not want to lose Virginia. That's where a lot of their leadership went lives. I mean, this is right next to D.C. They predicted this as a blue state. Uh, they don't want to lose the midterms. And they also don't want to send this message that. You know, right before they're trying to pass this legislation, uh, important legislation that a lot of moderates are hesitant on that like, hey, uh, this moderate Democrat just got destroyed by campaigning on the issues that we want you to be in support of. And these moderates are like, I'm going to lose next year or in 2024 if I continue to be held hostage by the far left. I don't want to I don't want to follow. I don't want to share in McCall's faith. Fate. So I don't think they, you know, this could, this election could very well derail a Democrat's legislative agenda. I mean, all these moderates, when they're seeing the build back <laughs> better plan may just like cut and run. They're like, no, I don't want to be a part of this. This is, gonna, this is going to ensure I don't win re-election. And they're looking at McCall. So I don't, I don't buy that idea that they just like let Republicans win. And it's like a huge embarrassment to Democrats too. It's like it, it it invalidates their core ideas about like how they want to completely run education and turn them into indoctrination camps. Like it's a rebuke of that, that like they don't want to be rebuked on this at all, even though, as I said before, the echo chamber is going to sue them and give them the uh, takeaway that they want. They still are going to like deep in their mind, going to realize that this is uh, not what they wanted. But I don't believe it is like that they necessarily let them win. Um, and it's the fact that like, Republicans can still win elections that are even competitive. They can still win even in 2024, even with what like happened in 2020. And I don't want people to get into the framework that they're, you know, completely defeatist. That and especially when it comes to and now we all know that elections aren't the uh, aren't the total solution. You know, they're not going to be they're not the answer to everything, but they are still have an impact. They still matter. They can still change some things. I mean, it's not the ultimate ultimate answer to every to our problems. You know, one election is not going to solve everything. I think we're all aware of that, and we need to be realistic about that. And we not need to not pretend that like we just won the final battle if we win the presidential election. No, like the battle continues on. It gets worse. I mean, it gets more fierce and competitive uh, going forward. So you just need to understand that. But at the same time. Like, you don't need to fall into this total black pill where it's like everything is rigged, everything is against you, everything is hopeless. And when people say this, like, well, this actually makes us uh, get outside the box they put us in. It's like, no, it's not. It's just turning people into, like, giving up on politics entirely and then just, I don't know, watching TV or focusing on their hobbies, which is what they really want you to do. And I've made this point about, like, people talking about secession and civil war. Is that, you know, you're not threatening the system by dropping out of politics, by not caring about politics. Actually, they want you to not care about politics. Because if you don't care about politics, you will accept everything that they shove down your throat. And you may say, no, I won't. And it's like, yes, you will, because you're not involved in politics. You're not involved in challenging the system and its orders. So if it's like your kid's masked up, learning about how to hate themselves because they're anti-white, what are you going to do? You're, you're apolitical. You're just focused on your hobbies. You're threatening the system by refusing to vote. 
And no, you're not threatening the system at all. You're just allowing the system to dictate your life. And that's the, and the only way to change that or challenge that is through normal politics. And that's not that doesn't just include elections. I think that just that includes a lot of things and includes activism and includes getting involved in these school boards and other things. I don't that's like all part of the normal political process and people like the we're thinking outside the box and generally people don't think outside the box. Uh, I mean, the only real clear cut thing is like they're forming their own communities and stuff. And that's like good. But you have to realize is like if you're not involved in politics, like the system can come down and eliminate those communities. Uh, look at what happened to the Branch Davidians. Like, even though I don't think they're like good. I mean, the Branch Davidians were nuts, but I mean, we're a free country. I mean, you're allowed to live as a nut if you want. But the system decided they're a threat and took them out. And, you know, if you if the system decided the system can one day decide like this apolitical community that's just living out alone, you know, it's a threat. They'll take them out. I mean, they've done this many times before. And the only way to prevent that is to by being involved in political <laughs> the political process where people will defend you, where people will actually advocate for issues you care about and push back against the insanity that the system promotes and the global American empire promotes. And so I don't think it's uh, thinking outside the box uh, to see the elections rigged. And even people get these more ridiculous ideas. It's like, we need to think beyond the two-party system because it's rigged. We need a third party. It's like, uh, if the system's rigged against Republicans, how do you think a, a third party is going to work? So people can just get more unrealistic. Like, people do see problems, and it's it's very much of a challenge. It's very hard. Like, I don't want to predict, like, it's going to be easy victories throughout. Like, we're going to suffer defeats. We're going to suffer setbacks. Like, we're going to suffer massive challenges. We already suffer massive challenges right now through censorship and, you know, the type of insane indoctrination put upon in schools and many, many other things. But at the same time, we still have to push forward. You just have to fight and to have a positive outlook. And that's also the main thing I want. It's like, I think, you know, I talk about the power of positive thinking. It's not like, it's not a hokey thing, but it's like, people need to be optimistic. People need to like, think that not everything is doom and gloom. People need to look and be like, we're going to win. We're, we're, we stand on the side of truth. And despite all these challenges and hurdles and obstacles and, crazy things that they'll do with elections and crazy things they'll do in schools and like these black lives matter revolution and like all these people seemingly to support our enemies ideas you just need to say to yourself we will win we that's all you need to think about you need to think positively because if you think positively it, uh, it encourages you to more to fight more and to challenge the, the regime more than it does to think negatively because if you're all doom and gloom you're eventually going to drop out and you're just going to say, I'm done with this. And when I talk with people, like all the people who are like doom and gloom, who are just like elections are over and stuff, they're not dedicating to anything that's like, for the most part, are not outside the system or thinking outside the box. They're just like, you know, they give up. They're, they're just like, uh, they're like nihilists now. And, you know, I understand why people succumb to that, but it's also, that's not good for a political movement. That's not a good for a movement if you want to change the world. And the best way to have the power to change the world is to have a positive outlook and a positive vision for the future and to never just succumb to blackpilling. You've got to be white-pilled. You've got to think we're going to win. And it doesn't matter what terrible things happen or are thrown in our way. We are going to overcome it and we're going to achieve victory. And that's why I don't want people to get too doom and gloom about elections. I know we, we all understand the problems of elections. We all understand the goofy things that happened in 2020. And we must insist on election integrity laws. And that is one of the most important things Republicans must do in the next year. And up until 2024 is to pass election integrity laws and reform elections. But they can they can do things to, to ensure that elections are much more safer and secure, like insisting on uh, voter ID with mail-in ballots, by restricting, by not allowing uh, dubious mail-in ballots to come in on days past the deadline or without proper uh, postage and other things. Like there are ways to, re to reform the system to ensure that we have a chance or our people have a chance at winning elections. And yes, we all know elections aren't the, uh, the, the sole answer, 
but they're part of our tool. They're part of our tools. They're in our arsenal of ways to achieve victory and achieve advance our cause. And you shouldn't give up on them. And yes, it's gonna be hard. Yes, there's gonna be more challenges and difficulties. But the thing you need to remember in the end is that we win and we can even have surprise victories in places we would have never thought. And on the final thought on Virginia, Youngkin, as I said, is not our guy. He has a lot of his issues. We shouldn't have high hopes for him. But the fact that he won an election on our issues, on the issues we care about, on the culture and identity issues, is a sign that our side is still advancing, that our cause is still the answer to winning elections, and our cause is eventually going to, or our side is eventually going to take over the GOP one day. It's, it's a slow process, but it's going to happen. And people who are like, oh no, the GOP just give up on it. It's like, uh, unfortunately, it's the only political vehicle we have at the moment. Maybe at another time it might break up, maybe something else arises in its you know place or whatever but for the foreseeable future that's the vehicle and you want more republicans to articulate and advocate for the ideas and issues that we care about and to fight back against the left on the on the fronts that we care about so it's a it's a win for us even though youngkin is not one of us and that is my final thoughts on virginia and that is it for the iq supplement today Tune in next week for another great Highly Respected and for another IQ Supplement. And make sure to subscribe to the IQ Supplements if you're a new listener. So until next time, stay respected.